The intimate connection between race and public space was demonstrated last summer with Black Lives Matter rallies in the US and elsewhere around the world in the wake of the killing of an unarmed black male in the hands of white policemen. The worldwide protests against, against racist police violence are part of a broader agenda of decolonizing public space, including the toppling of colonial era statues. This agenda points to the larger historical context of the connection between race, the body, movement and space, namely European imperialism, transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery itself. Settler colonialism has left a lasting imprint on the demographic composition of former colonies, uh, which is the legacy of imperialist exercises in population replacement, by land grab, forced population transfer and resettlement, that is slave trade, and systemic rape. Slave trade, slavery and colonialism have persistently set in motion global migration flows, for example, from North Africa to Europe. Racial segregation has been legally banned almost everywhere, but continues to exist informally, as we all know. However, the unequal racialized distribution of zones of comfort and discomfort is not only an ontic or empirical issue, but one's racialized relation to space also has an ontological dimension. In this paper, I will explore the relation between the white body, space and movement, translated on the ontological level as embodiment, spatiality and motility using conceptual tools taken from the phenomenological tradition for its wealth of insight in embodiment. My aim today is to expand the phenomenology of racial embodiment, more particularly whiteness, by attending not just to visibility, but also to the spatiality and motility of racialized, in particular white, embodiment. I will illustrate my argument with some personal experiences as a white middle-class woman taken from the Dutch and South African context, which I hope transcends the merely anecdotal. I should like to finish off this introduction with a preliminary remark. Of course, there's no homogeneous white embodiment or subjectivity, as there is no homogeneous black uh, embodiment. Race intersects with class, gender and nationality, to mention but some other significant features of one's situation. In this paper, I will attend to the race-class nexus in particular, with class pertaining to education, income and financial and cultural capital. Let me first discuss uh, the stakes involved in understanding the ontological status of race. According to a number of consecutive UNESCO statements on the, so, the race question, race does not belong to humans' essential biological makeup. As a consequence, it holds, biological conceptions of race are to be qualified as pseudoscientific and harmful. The only alternative to such conceptions, it seems, is to regard race as man-made, a social construction, most notably by racist norms, whatever the variety of meanings and lived consequences of racialized embodiment across time and place. 
The social constructivist perspective on race is arguably the default in critical race theory and post-colonial studies, as well as in the anti-racist pro protest movement today. The assumption that race is nothing but a biological essence, what I call naturalism, is historically closely related to anti-black racism and white supremacy. The opposite belief that race is no more than a social construct, culturalism, one could say, is far less susceptible to the charge of racism. Still, this social constructivist view is historically not entirely adequate as it seems to explain away bodily differences. We cannot not see racial differences, even if we accept that these are the result of historical processes of racialization. Likewise, we cannot not appear and hence be seen as racially different from others. By dismissing racial difference as merely conventional, it, it ignores the social and political consequences of bodily differences and the asymmetries of privilege and power it results in. Racial difference seems to present us with a peculiar, unyielding lived reality and tenacity. Altering racialized features takes, takes great effort, such as nose, lip and eye plastic surgery, and permanently changing one's skin color and, and the te texture of one's hair is, to the best of my knowledge, impossible. Race cannot, at least not simply, be explained away conceptually on account of human's bodily differences. The first people to acknowledge or to get that race is a system of categorization related to bodily differences are usually those who are seen as racially inferior. For example, black people, Arabs, Roma, Latinos, Native Americans, Aboriginal people, the list being contingent on place and time. Even if race plays no or only a minor role in one's self-identification, others sooner or later will remind one of it, the overwhelming majority of them being non-white. The French Antillian phenomenologist Franz Fanon was the first to account for the meaning of race as visible bodily difference in his 1952 book Peau Noir, Masque Blanc, uh, in English translation Black Skin, White Masks. In a chapter called The Lived Experience of the Black Man, he observes that, and I quote, the Jewishness of the Jew can go unnoticed. He is not integrally what he is. But with me, things take on a new face. I'm not given a second chance. I am overdetermined from the outside. I am a slave not to the idea others have of me, but to my appearance. End quote. Apart from historical reasons, there are sound philosophical reasons as well to challenge both racial naturalism and constructivism. Both takes on the relation between nature, the biological body, and culture, norms, are ontologically reductive and fail to explain the interaction between the two. Naturalists regard the body as a machine and hold a determinist view of racial embodiment. As a consequence, they cannot plausibly account for the shifting meanings of, for example, whiteness. 
Racial constructivism, on the other hand, reduces the body to a canvas for culture and norms, symbolic norms, to project on. For naturalists, there's nothing but the raised body. For culturalists, on the other hand, the body is merely a passive object which plays no part in the construction of racial difference. As such, it is emptied of ontological dignity. Racial constructivists and the majority of anti-racist activists tend to be reluctant to address the body other than as a discursive construction for fear of ending up in muddled grounds. However, I believe we need to investigate rather than assert the assumption that taking seriously the racialized body is a racist practice as a matter of course. We then end up with the following question. If we accept in agreement with advocates of social constructivism that race is not a biological essence, then how are we to account for bodily differences? By questioning both naturalist and constructivist conceptions of race, I don't mean to make a case for steering an all too predictable middle course between nature, the biological body with its differences, and culture, cultural meanings and evaluations attributed to those differences and the norms informing them. If race would be partly natural, partly cultural, then how are we to distinguish between the two to begin with. If we accept that the racialized body is nearly, neither merely natural nor merely cultural, it is no easy task to conceptualize the ontological status of race. I believe the phenomenological tradition has provided us with a number of extremely helpful conceptual tools, even if phenomenologists have not always addressed racial difference explicitly. Phenomenologists as diverse as Heidegger, Sartre and Beauvoir have put forward notions of facticity and the situatedness of human existence. Human beings are situated. They are born to particular parents in a particular place in the world with a particular body, etc. Phenomenological accounts of the body, most notably those by, developed by Merleau-Ponty, Fanon and Beauvoir in the mid-20th century, are helpful in exploring and challenging the very distinctions that conceptions of race tend to get stuck in, especially those between nature and culture, body and mind, subject and object, self and world, etc. themselves. According to these phenomenologists, human existence is paradoxical since we are both part of the world and coextensive with it constituting and constituted at the same time. For Merleau-Ponty, this paradox is bound up with our embodied existence. He demonstrates that it is the body that allows us to have a world in the first place. The body and the world are ambiguously intertwined. The subject or self in traditional metaphysical sense does not precede what is traditionally called the object or world or vice versa. They are co-constitutive, precisely by virtue of our, of our embodied existence. The body, according to Merleau-Ponty, is, and I quote, not merely an object in the world, rather it is our point of view in the world, end quote. It is through the body that we have access to the world.
Meloponti has been accused of being oblivious of the racialized as well as the gender body and of implicitly universalizing what is actually a particular male and white mode of embodied being in the world. Fanon and Beauvoir, by contrast, demonstrate that and how the ambiguous intertwinement of body and world is informed by one's situation in terms of race, respectively sex and gender. Despite the reservations just men mentioned, many contemporary phenomenological accounts of racialized embodiment draw upon Meloponti's work in, in addition to Fanon's for the clues it provides for rethinking the black or white body in non-reductive and non-dualistic ways. In the last section of this paper, I will argue that the I can body may be such a clue. Within recent critical race theory, phenomenological scholarship is unique in focusing on the racialized body, as most social constructivists are reluctant to address it. In particular, contemporary critical phenomenologists of race have developed compelling and rich accounts of the visual register of racialized embodiment. The absolute classic reference point here is Fanon's marvelous essay on the lived experience of the black man from which I just read a quote. Another source of inspiration is Sartre's analysis of the objectifying gaze. Let me briefly illustrate his analysis of the gaze, appearance and being seen to appear with a personal experience of uh, becoming racialized. I turned white in 2015, when, as a Dutch expat, I temporarily moved into an apartment in the inner city of Johannesburg, South Africa, which has a near-exclusive black population. Only through this experience did I learn about the facticity of white embodiment. Consistent with Fanon's argument that a white body, qua white, simply goes unnoticed, I had previously been colorless in the Netherlands, living in my native country, blending in with my environment to the point of being anonymous. In my new city of residence, I became a member of a minority group, white people, overnight, which meant I stood out visibly in public space. Seeing non-white others see me as white first made me see myself as white too. The lived consequences of the facticity of whiteness are, however, completely different from those of blackness due to the privileges and symbolic power which come with whiteness. From an ontological perspective, there is, however, more to the racialized body than visibility. White and black embodiments are not just involved in perceptual notably visual habits, but also come among other features with particular ontological situations vis-a-vis -vis space and movement, that is, ways of inhabiting and taking up space and particular habits or styles of moving between and within them. Our racial situation is manifest, among other things, in our bodies being oriented in the world in a particular way, British cultural, cultural theorist Sarah Ahmed argues, following Husserl. 
American pragmatist philosopher Shannon Sullivan has called a typically white mode of orientation in the world ontological expansiveness. This notion captures white, white people's implicit assumption, or what she calls unconscious habit, that they can go wherever they wish. Sullivan identifies white expansiveness as the ontological foundation of Europeans' proprietary or possessive relation to non-European territories. Less conspicuously, ontological expansiveness also underpins the ways in which the white body inhabits and navigates in its environment, the world, today. Let me give two examples of the latter, with respectively carelessness and shock, as indications of respectively being in and having fallen out of a white comfort zone. In a striking scene in a recent Dutch documentary film, White is also a color, this is ook een kleur, from 2016, <coughs> the white director, Sunny Bergman, takes a stroll with a friend of color along a lakeside near Amsterdam and ignores a sign prohibiting trespassing. She casually tells her friend that she has been doing this for years on a daily basis as her routine walk, like many of her white, white neighbors, covers this stretch of the lakeside. Bergman's friend expresses surprise about Bergman's carelessness. For a black person, ignoring prohibition signs is anything but self-evident. If caught, white people most of the time simply get away with trespassing and will usually only receive a warning. Black people, on the other hand, report legalistic responses and even police abuse much more frequently. <coughs> the incredulity of Bergman's fr friend made me ret retrospectively aware of my own unconscious spatial habits, which is a second example of white expansiveness. This example additionally aims to demonstrate how the facticities of race and class are in inextricably tangled. In Johannesburg, I was shocked to learn that what had always uh, simply been self-evident to me, namely that one can move around freely in public urban space, no longer applied here due to the high rates and violent nature of street crime. Previously, I took it for granted to walk in and out of any semi-public space, shop, office, street, park, public transport system, without being summoned to leave and even without someone paying attention at all. I felt it is a basic human right to move around public spaces and commercial areas without reasonable or legitimate inhibitions or restrictions and to settle in whatever affordable neighborhood one likes. Restrictions of one's free movement and settlement therefore constitute a serious violation of a basic right. I experienced the prevalence of street crime in Johannesburg, Johannesburg's inner city not just as a threat to my bodily and psychological integrity, but also to some vaguely sensed right to go wherever I wish. My neighbors, however, never even fancies having such a right, although everyone assured me no one ever gets used to living with a constant fear of physical violation. Still, all of them black, they were exposed to this th threat far more incisively than me. True to the double legacy of apartheid, 
the structures of geographic segregation of different racialized groups are still largely in place in the already extreme socio-economic inequalities even on the up. Black and colored people have significantly higher chances than whites of living in poor and crime-ridden neighborhoods, uh, such as former townships and informal settlements, and of lacking the means to opt out, for example by withdrawing into gated communities and only using individual means of transport. As a consequence, these citizens are condemned to public spaces with high risks of becoming victim of street crime or police violence, as they depend on it for earning a living and for transportation. The COVID-19 pandemic and government measures to contain the spreading of the coronavirus have recently added a health hazard to these risks and exacerbated asymmetries in orientation in public space along lines of racialized privilege. Whereas residents of predominantly white affluent neighborhoods have quickly adapted to strict quarantine rules, such as working from home, residents of uh, the inner city and the townships, most of them non-white, cannot usually afford staying at home and therefore are in danger of becoming infected with the coronavirus. To clarify ontological expansiveness and the ontological constitution of public space as open or closed phenomenologically, I will now turn to Melo-Ponty's account of the I can body. As said, Melo-Ponty argues that the body allows us to have a world in the first place. Now, the world is spatial as a matter of course. In fact, and I quote, there would be no space at all for me if I had no body. Melo-Ponty writes, My body does not exist in space as water is in a glass, but it is a very anchorage in the world. We perceive the world, including its spatial dimensions, as and to the extent that it offers us possibilities for action, or rather, as it solicits our skillful responses, responses and fle flexible bodily competences, that is, what I can do, given the particular projects that I am involved in. The I can refers to a pre-reflective or pre-discursive embodied knowing how to do something. It is our everyday ability or power to cope with whatever the world and our projects in their interplay present us with, without the need of any mediation by explicit intentions or the will. The I can is our basic mode of being in the world and the condition of the body's constitution of space. Perception is a matter of I can instead of I think that, of knowing how rather than knowing that. Our environment shows up, reve reveals or discloses itself relative to our practical projects and our bodily capacity capacities to engage in them. So perception takes place in an ambiguous interplay between our environment, our projects, the task at hand that we are presently engaged in, and our bodily capacities. Because of our bodies, we can hold something before ourselves, that is, to have we have a here with respect to which a there can be experienced, while in the process we get a sense of the particular place of these objects of attention and the relation relations among them.
We and the things around us are replaced. The things, or the aspects of it, that are revealed to me are dependent upon my bodily situation. So space in Merleau-Ponty's account is always, at least initially, oriented, phenomenal or lived space because it requires us to perform certain actions as opposed to the abstra abstract homogeneous space of geometry. Likewise, spatial things are far from objects or dead matter, like the Cartesian res extensa. The world in general, and its spatial features in particular, is always already meaningful to us, that is, of a particular kind and relevant to our particular projects and bodily capacities. It discloses itself in relation to those. For example, distant is that which is far away from me, out of my body's reach, and proximate is that which is close to me, within my body's reach. Similarly, I experience movement as the thing moves into and out of my attention, the phenomenal field. The same goes for depth, dimension, direction, size and shape. For Melo-Ponty, the body, to the extent that it is competent, creates an immediate link between the spatiality of one's own body and one's su uh, surrounding or outlying space. Um, he writes, and I quote, each instant of the movement embraces its whole span, and particularly the first, which, by being active and initiative, institutes the link between a here and a yonder. End quote. However, in a seminal 1980 essay, Throwing Like a Girl, feminist phenomenologist Iris Marion Young demonstrates that Merleau-Ponty may paint a falsely universalistic picture which generalizes a particular male way of moving one's body in space. A careful phenomenological analysis of the way girls, respectively boys, throw objects reveal that men and women, or at least boys and girls, live and move their bodies in space differently. As Young writes, uh, start quote, Girls tend to project an enclosed space and boys, boys to project in open and outwardly directed space. She continues, in feminine existence, the projection of an enclosed space severs the continuity between a here and a yonder. Girls thus experience a dual spatiality. What is most significant for my purpose is that Young demonstrates the possible severing of the link or continuity between the spatiality of my body, the here, and outer space, the yonder or over there. In short, while Merleau-Ponty holds that we project an open space, that is a space in which inner and outer are continuous, Young points out that this may not be a universal human experience. In fact, everyday, normal, open space may give way to an enclosed or confining one that inhibits rather than enables our movements and projects. What we can do is contingent upon our situation, entailing not just our sex or gender, but also, I would add, our racial and, racial and socio-economic situation. Ontological expansiveness implies the embodied projection of an open public space which is typical for privileged people, 
or from white and middle class. To put it in Ahmed's phrasing, orientation in open space may be a symptom of privilege rather than a sign of competence. Particular non-discursive, unconscious habits illustrate this orientation. For example, Sunny Bergman's clandestine stroll along the lakeside and my own innocence regarding the traversing of public spaces in South Africa. White expansiveness is not only manifest in going wherever one fancies, but also in leaving any place or in withdrawing into private spheres whenever one likes, for example in, in quarantine. In Johannesburg I realized I could leave at any moment and return to the Netherlands should my stay become uncomfortable by virtue of a privilege that was denied to my neighbors. In conclusion, what I've tried to explore in this paper is the interaction of nature and culture, biology and history, through the ambiguous intertwinement of body and world. Following Melo-Ponty, Fanon, Beauvoir and Marion Young, I've tried to make a case for the mutual ontological constitution of the racialized body and racialized public space. This means, from the perspective of the body, that what bodies can do in public space and where, who can and who can't move around it freely, confidentially and uninhibited, and who can withdraw from it to es escape exposure, is to a large extent dependent upon one's racial situation. From the perspective of public space, this means that it shows up in different ways to differently situated people, the appearance of public space as, on the one hand, open, or on the other, as closed or a side of exposure to street crime, police violence and health risks, in other words, the distribution of zones of comfort and discomfort is racialized. This appearance uh, as open or closed is not just a subjective feeling, but a feature of the interaction between the embodied self and the world. The world accommodates some bodies better than others, and vice versa. Thank you very much.